We haven't got much time. We've got a massive subject, so we're going to be very quick and uh, we'll do no more than just really glance at it as we go. But uh, we've been looking over the last uh, few weeks at some of the titles given to the Lord Jesus Christ during his, um, in Scripture that relate particularly to his coming to earth, to his incarnation. And uh, we've already looked at names like Emmanuel, um, Jesus of Nazareth, um, uh, son of oh, no, sorry, we didn't look at the son of man, did we? Um, and we come now to man of sorrows. And in looking at man of sorrows, I want us to see his suffering and his sacrifice. I suggest to you that many people today would see it as totally inappropriate um, at Christmas to be looking at the death of Jesus. Uh, some would do that through ignorance. They would say, like it was portrayed in the play that one of the Coveys did on uh, the Carol service. Um, sort of, you know, don't, you don't want to talk about Christmas in front of a baby, you know, that's, that's totally inappropriate. And it would just be a complete failure of understanding what Christmas is about. But I would suggest to you there are others that would argue along the lines that to talk about his death now is to totally diminish the wonder of his incarnation. That all you're doing is, is uh, making it nothing more than a necessary step that he had to go through in order to die and to do that is to rob the incarnation of the wonder of the miracle that it was well clearly we don't want to do that and in the names we've already looked at we've tried to focus on what his coming to earth meant apart from his death that he came to reveal God to us that, in, that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form that his wonder of his teaching the wonder of his miracles uh, the wonder of all that we read about him in the Gospels how could we diminish that? That is amazing, that is wonderful, that is precious. But friend, however precious and wonderful you see all of that, we must see his death even more so, mustn't we? We're looking this morning at greater and surely the greatest aspect of all of the Lord's incarnation is the fact that he came to die. Jesus made it abundantly clear time and time again through his earthly ministry that that's what he'd come for. For example, just taking Mark's Gospel alone, chapter 8, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The very next chapter, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise again. The very next chapter, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Two chapters later, he's telling a parable and he says in the parable, he had one, le he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. A couple of chapters later still, speaking of the anointing of his feet, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And a couple of verses later, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
and so on and so on and so on. In fact, it's amazing when you look at the four gospel accounts how much is given over to that last week of his life. Considering that he lived 33 years or thereabouts, Matthew gives a third of his gospel to that last week. Mark gives a third. Luke gives about a fifth. John gives nearly half of his gospel to the events from Palm Sunday through to the resurrection. Of all they could write about Jesus, of all they could focus on, their primary focus by far and away was on the events leading up to and the, the, the detail of his death and his resurrection. Rather than diminishing the wonder of the incarnation, I would suggest to you that it's only by focusing on the death that we give the incarnation meaning. The whole wonder of Jesus coming to this world only makes sense in light of what he came to do. And as Christians, if at Christmas we fail to see that, we so dishonour our Lord. Of course we sing the carols about his coming. Of course we sing the carols about him, God with us, of him being a babe in a manger and all the rest of it. But let's not lose sight for one minute of why he came and what it cost him to secure our salvation. And as we come to this verse in Isaiah, and I just want us to focus on one verse, Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. There are those who would see the familiar with suffering and the acquainted with grief as meaning nothing more than he spent his life moving amongst people who were suffering and grieving and therefore he was familiar with it. He was constantly in contact with it, they would say. That's what it means there. I would suggest to you it means anything but that. It means far, far more than that. And there are those that would say when it talks about um, his being despised and rejected, it's only talking about the events of those last few hours before his death. And certainly he was despised and rejected there, but that's only a tiny bit of it as well, isn't it? Let's look first then at the suffering of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. If that was given as the description of anybody, wouldn't we say what a tragic description? What a terrible description for someone to have to bear as being how they lived and how they died. And yet for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator God, what a description to give to him. And yet it's so appropriate, isn't it? Not just for his death, but for everything that led up to that. Go right back to his birth as we did this morning. I just want to thank George for this morning. I really appreciated his ministry this morning. But just right back to his birth. What do we read there? Luke 2, 7. She gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. The suffering of Jesus. It started right there. The first breath he took was polluted by the smell of animals. The first surface he touched was probably the, a carved out lump of limestone or granite, which usually rectangular, dug out, a, a feeding trough. The only heat he would have experienced was the heat of the animals around him that would have given some sort of heat into that 
room. The noises he would have heard were the noises of animals around him. And as he grew, when other children are enjoying time with their parents and grandparents and getting to know their home and their neighbourhood, where's Jesus? Exiled in Egypt. And then as he goes into his public ministry, what do we read? He's baptised and straight away what happens? 40 days without food in the wilderness. And constantly through that time, Satan attacking him, seeking to cause him to sin in his thoughts or his words or his actions in some way to pull him down. And we claim so often as his followers that we have it hard, don't we? And yet listen to the words of Jesus as Luke records him in Luke 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And when he wanted a coin for an illustration, he had to borrow it. When he wanted a boat to preach from, he had to borrow that. When he wanted, even on that moment when he was recognised on earth more than at any other time, as who he was, as he went into Jerusalem, on what we call Palm Sunday, he had to borrow a donkey to ride on. And then he had to borrow a room to share the Passover with his disciples. And in his death he had to borrow a tomb to lay in. And it wasn't only the physical things he was deprived of, was it? Though it was not all criticism, rejection and hatred, there were those who welcomed him gladly, but the vast majority didn't. Or maybe for a season and then they turned their backs on him. At the start of his ministry, we read in John 1.11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And then throughout we read that when he delivered this demonically possessed man of demons and drove them into the pigs, what was the reaction of the town that he came from? The whole town went out to meet Jesus. You think, wow! And what do we read? And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave the region. The next chapter, the Pharisee said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. A couple of chapters on, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Next chapter, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Martha, isn't mother, his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. Chapter 19 of Matthew, some Pharisees came to him to test him. Chapter 21, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wondrous things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The same chapter later on, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. 
The next chapter and the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. And a couple of chapters later, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. And a few verses later, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Oh, the suffering of Jesus. In his physical circumstance, in his lack of all the things that we take for granted every day of our lives, and in the reception from those he'd come to save. From those who had no other hope of salvation except by putting their trust in him. And what did they turn around and do? Reject him, ridicule him, try and trap him, seek to put him to death. And after arresting him, they brought in false witnesses to testify against him. They had him stripped and beaten. They had a crown of thorns forced on his head. They forced him to walk through the city, bearing his cross, to a place where they would crucify him. The crowd cries out, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And of his friends, his disciples, his followers, who for three years he's taught and loved and provided for and shared everything with. One betrays him, (coughs) one denies him, and the rest abandon him. And through all of his life we find him just serving others, giving, 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 giving. Constantly surrounded by a crowd who wants him to heal and wants him to teach and even when the disciples can see physically he's getting too much for him and wants to keep the children away, he welcomes them. And even when he's in a distant place he goes out of his way to come down through Samaria to meet with one woman who no one else can be bothered with in order to show to her the way of life. And when he wants to pray, the only place he can find solitude is to go up into a mountain. Oh, the suffering of Jesus. What is he called a man of sorrows? That was his life, my friend. Until 33 years of age where it ended like that. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And then there's his sacrifice. And my friends, we could spend months on that, couldn't we? And we've got about five minutes. His sacrifice. Not enough that he should be rejected in life, but in death as well. Rejected and abandoned. Abandoned by the crowd that at one time had followed him. Abandoned by those who cried Hosanna to the son of David as he rode into Jerusalem. Abandoned by those who knew their scriptures and should have known better. Abandoned by his disciples who professed faith in him. And abandoned by his father as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God the Father turns his back upon him as he unleashes on him the wrath that was due on my sin and on the sin of each person who puts their trust and hope in Christ. I 
take it that we're all here tonight convinced of the historical fact that Jesus died by crucifixion 2,000 years ago. I wonder if we're as certain that it was part of God's plan and purpose. We should be. It wasn't just a freak accident of history. It wasn't just the plan of evil men, although it was that. But over and above that, it was the good plan of God. How does Isaiah put it? Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you go down to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, it was God, God, God. And the disciples saw it like that. They had no doubts. Do you remember when Peter and John are brought before the uh, Sanhedrin over the issue of their preaching and they charge them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus and they go back to the disciples. What do the disciples do? They turn to God in prayer. And what do they pray? This is what they pray. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that awesome? They were seeking to destroy the Christ and all they actually did in the end was what God the Father wanted, that Jesus Christ should die on a cross in order that he might pay the debt of sin for the redeemed. Isn't that amazing? And no, it wasn't cosmic child abuse. God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit together decided the plan. They together approved it. They together implemented it. And Jesus said, I've come to do my Father's will. Oh my friend, what are you celebrating this Christmas? Or the coming of Jesus into the world, of course. But does it stop there? Is that what the focus has been on exclusively over these couple of days? That we're celebrating Jesus coming to the world. Praise God for that. That that was a, an incredible miracle, the likes of which this world has never seen since. That somehow this creator God who is everywhere present at one and the same time took on a second nature, a human nature like unto ours and walked this planet. And I don't want to diminish that for one moment. But my friend, is that all you've been giving thanks for this Christmas? That Jesus came and that we saw what God was like and we've got his wonderful teachings to read and we've got the wonderful miracles to think about and to give praise for. Is that all? Or are you worshipping him even more because of what he came to do? That he came to suffer and he came to be a sacrifice for there was no other way I hadn't thought of this until someone mentioned it this afternoon to me and I thought it's a good thought you think how many people Jesus healed during his lifetime when they had something wrong with them and yet when his back was laid open he refrained from healing it 
when his hands were pierced he refrained from healing them when they beat him when they forced the crown down on his head he refrained from healing himself and when he could have cried and 12 legions 72,000 angels would have come down to deliver him from that cross he chose instead to hang there abandoned by man and abandoned by God in order that he might bear in his body the punishment for my sin and yours if you've truly come in repentance and faith to Christ oh my friend of all the titles that Jesus bears touching on his humanity surely this has got to be one of the greatest hasn't it man of sorrows just have a moment's quietness shall we and perhaps just reflect on what that title means to us and let's in our hearts just give thanks to the man of sorrows for what he bore for us